Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with a child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Quote, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And they called his name Jesus. Good morning and Merry Christmas. What a privilege to be able to assemble as the Lord's people on the Lord's day to celebrate our Lord's birth, which is unlike any other birth that we celebrate. We sing happy birthday to one another, but we only go caroling for Christ. We have parties for our loved ones, but we only have a holiday, a holy day for Jesus Christ. We anticipate the coming of a birthday weeks in advance, but we only have an Advent season for Jesus, to give our hearts adequate time to prepare Him room. We receive gifts on our birthday, but this is the day that we celebrate the Lord's gift of His Son, the great treasure of heaven for us sinners here on earth. And so this is a glorious time of uh, year that we celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ our Lord. And this morning we want to recall exactly the significance of this day and of this season and of His coming. So if you'll join me in a word of prayer, then we will open the Gospel of Matthew. Father, we do thank you for Christmas. We thank you for the coming of Christ. We thank you for your great love for us, that when we rebelled against you, that you did not abandon us, but you set out on a plan of redemption that was millennium in the coming and culminated in the birth of Jesus that led to his death on a cross and his rising from a grave to redeem us from our sins, and that now we can anticipate His return, not merely dreading the coming of a judge, but longing for the return of our Savior. Father, we thank You for this beautiful day, and even just driving in and seeing the bright sun burning away the dark fog, and just a beautiful reminder of what the coming of Christ was, that the sunrise from on high rose and burnt away the fog of the falsehood and the confusion of the sinful fallen world. So thank you for this time that we have. Thank you for this inspired book that we have to read the words of one that was not merely inspired by the Spirit, but who knew Jesus, who knew Mary, who knew this story intimately, 
and is related to it that we might appreciate its significance afresh. So let your spirit move in all of us this morning, we ask in your son's name. Amen. Matthew chapter 1 begins with, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. Now the first thing to realize is that Christ is not Jesus' last name. It wasn't as though Joseph Christ and Mary Christ had Jesus Christ. And if you needed some woodwork done in Nazareth, you didn't go to Christ Carpentry. Christ is a title, not a name. And specifically, it is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Messiah that is the term for God's promised deliverer. The going all the way back to the rebellion of Adam and Eve in the garden, that God promised that he would raise up a seed of Eve to deliver us from Satan. And then with the call of Abram, we had the promise of a son of Abram in whom all the nations would be blessed. And then we had the promise of one that would rise like a lion of the tribe of Judah. And the one that would be a son of David who would reign as king on earth forever. And all of these anticipations were wrapped up in this one word, Messiah, Christ. Of God has not abandoned his people, but he has promised to deliver. And we're waiting and we're waiting and we're waiting and we're longing and we're longing. And maybe y'all can remember a time when you longed for a deliverer. Maybe it was school and you couldn't wait for mama's car to come up and she was going to deliver you from your languishing at that school. Or maybe it was mom and the chores and you were waiting for dad to come home and deliver you from mom. Or whatever the occasion was, we've all had these moments of awaiting a deliverer and this anticipation, looking, longing, desiring, when will my deliverer come? And all of that is wrapped up in this word, Christ, the Messiah. And the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now, Mary and Joseph were introduced to us in the first 17 verses of the gospel, where Matthew is proving Jesus' pedigree to be the Messiah that he is indeed the son of David, that he is indeed a descendant of Abram, that he is indeed of the tribe of Judah, that he meets all of the requirements of the Old Testament to be the Messiah. But other than that, Mary and Joseph are not the couple that we would anticipate to be entrusted with the most significant human life that ever lived. They were a humble couple. They were working class poor, from a small town known as Nazareth that fellow Israelites mocked and would say things like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? They weren't wealthy. They weren't noble. They weren't from an upper class. They weren't elite rabbinical families. They were common folk because Jesus came not merely for the elites. And when he came and put himself on earth, he made himself accessible and approachable. Uh, a couple weeks ago when the Nazarene church put out the nativity scene, on a Sunday morning, one of our little girls was there and she was drawn by the baby Jesus. And you could just see her. She went up there and she was kind of reaching out and hesitantly touching his foot. And she was drawn by this baby. She felt free to approach this babe, which is so different than Israel at Sinai where the thunder and the lightning made them fall down in fear and say, don't let this God draw near us. Or when Isaiah appeared before the throne room of God and fell down and said, woe to me, I'm an unclean man of unclean lips. And if we had seen Jesus in his glory, like John did in the book of Revelation, we would have fallen down in terror and in horror and realized, I'm unworthy to approach such a one. But God 
put himself in human flesh and entrusted himself to this humble family that wasn't in a palace, that wasn't in a fortress, that wasn't in some faraway place, but working class people that everybody could relate to because he came for all and not just the elite. And before they came together, before they were married, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now the Gospel of Luke tells us what happened here. Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were relatives of Mary, Elizabeth was miraculously able to conceive a child in her older years, and six, six months into that pregnancy, the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and said, your relative has a miraculous baby, and you too will have a miraculous baby. And you remember Mary's response, how can this be, for I'm a virgin? And he says that the Holy Spirit will overshadow you and therefore the child that is born within you will be called the Holy One of God. And Mary, in that great act of faith, said, Behold, the bondservant of the Lord, knowing that she'd be scandalized, knowing that she'd be slandered, probably expecting that her fiancé would reject her, that her family would reject her, said, If this is the Lord's will for me, then I'm willing to receive it. And she went away to be with Elizabeth for the last three months of her pregnancy and then returned. And now you can imagine things from Joseph's perspective. So you're engaged to this young woman. She goes away to the vicinity of Jerusalem for three months and she comes back pregnant. And when you ask her what happened, her explanation is the Holy Spirit did it. Now this is utterly unprecedented. There's no antecedent for this. There's miraculous conceptions before, but nothing like this. And you can imagine Joseph wanting to trust Mary, but in a quandary because she went away, she came back pregnant, what am I to do? Well, the text tells us that Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. So Joseph was a righteous man. He had to obey the law of Moses, and the law of Moses said that if there is an unfaithful fiancé, that person can be stoned, or at the very least, they've broken trust and it breaks up what was considered a marriage. A betrothal in Hebrew culture was much more significant than an engagement today. And in fact, he's called her husband even before their wedding. But he isn't only a righteous man, law-abiding, he's a merciful man, a compassionate man. He could have publicly denounced her. He could have somehow blamed it all on her and cleared his own name. But instead, he wants to do what the rabbinic law or tradition allowed them to do, was to not have a public defamation, but rather to have a private trial before a couple of rabbis and then to divorce her. So we know the character of Joseph. He wasn't wealthy, he wasn't educated, he wasn't influential, but he was a just man. He was a righteous man. He was a God-fearing man, but he was a merciful man. And as he's considered this, verse 20, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So this needs angelic authentication. God is kind, comes to Joseph, appears to him. He knows his name. He refers to him as the son of David because this is going to relate to his lineage as the one who is of the line of the Messiah. Don't be afraid to take Mary. Don't fear God's disapproval. 
as though you're doing something in violation of the Mosaic Law. Don't fear your community's disapproval, even though your trade and your livelihood depends on your good reputation and name in the community. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife for the, and don't miss the word, child within her, not cluster of cells, not bunch of tissue, the child at conception who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, the gender determined at conception, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people. So there's going to be not just she has a child, this is the origin of the child, and it is miraculous, it's the Holy Spirit. Here's the gender of the child, it's going to be a son. Here's the name of the child that is a good Jewish name, Yeshua, Joshua, which means Yahweh saves, Yahweh delivers, Yahweh save us, depending on how you translate it. Think of the beauty of that, first of all that God is one who is willing and able to save. God is one who is willing and able to deliver. Uh, when I was a young man, it might have been around 1976, whenever the Star Wars came out, because my Christmas gift that year was the LP of the Star Wars that I played over and over again. And we were visiting friends in Minnesota, and we went out on a walk, and in the snow, this host, two large dogs, broke loose and came and jumped on me. And I remember this large dog, maybe two, I was young. I had the thick coat, but I was on top. I couldn't move. The dog was growling over me. And I remember my dad coming and running and throwing his body into the dog and knocking it off. And dad was there and dad saw and dad cared and dad intervened and put himself at risk to deliver me. And I still remember that about dad throwing his body to knock the dog off. Now contrast that when David and I were in Louisiana, and I was in kindergarten, and Dave was in preschool, and David had done something to raise the teacher's ire, and he was being dragged from the room, Dave's laughing, he remembers, in order to, I think in those days you could still be paddled, and Dave goes, help me brother, help me brother, <laughs> and I did absolutely nothing. <laughs> I pretended like I didn't know the man. I was not willing to deliver. I was unable to save. But our God does. And if all you knew was that Yahweh saves, think about some of the things we would want Him to save us from. To save us from oppression, whether that's a wicked boss or government or spouse or parent or coach or teacher or bully. We would want God to save us from our economic need and distress. We would want God to save us from disease and disability and the decline of old age. We would want God to save us from loneliness and isolation and alienation. We would want God to save us from conflict and fighting and the pain of strife. We'd want God to save us from our own corruption and wickedness because we're our own worst enemies. But God goes to the root of all these maladies. He goes to the common cause of all these afflictions. He goes to the source of all of these miseries, which is our sin. Yahweh doesn't just save. He saves us from our sins. Now, 
sin is falling short of the perfect righteous requirements of God. Any time that we disobey God and disregard Him, we sin. Any time that we obey Him with impure motives, we sin. Any time we entertain wicked thoughts and harbor wicked desires, we sin. And because God is perfect, His standard of righteousness is perfection. So even though we might be relatively better than one another, none of us are perfect like God requires it. And once we've sinned once, we've disqualified ourselves from heaven. Once we've sinned once, we have now found ourselves condemned of God and deserving of an eternity away from Him. And these sins that afflicted us, we couldn't do anything about. But God did. And the naming of the Son indicated His mission, which was to come as Yahweh's deliverer to save us specifically from our sins. And let's consider whom He saved. He saved sinners. Because all of us are imperfect. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. None of us are righteous. No, not one. Which means all of us are helpless to save ourselves. All of us are undeserving of God's salvation. All of us add daily and weekly to the sins and our guilt, and we distance ourselves further and further away from God. And we find ourselves completely and utterly at the mercy of God. But praise God, God is merciful. Because now consider what He saved us from. What He saved us from is our sins. God sent His Son, the second person of the Trinity, to become a human being in the person of Jesus Christ to save us from the penalty of our sins. That Jesus Christ was condemned in our place so that we could receive the righteousness of God that He had earned to be declared righteous in God's eye. Jesus took on our sins and gave us His righteousness so that we could be declared righteous before the righteous judge. Jesus was forsaken of the Father so that we could be adopted by the Father. Jesus experienced God's wrath so that we could experience God's love. Jesus was abandoned so that we could be embraced. Jesus came so that God's grace might extend far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, because that curse is going to be lifted someday by Jesus. And so the terrible penalty that our sin deserved of condemnation before God, Jesus took on Himself so that we might be redeemed and forgiven and pardoned and justified and God's wrath satisfied and propitiated and we could be embraced and adopted and know God as our Father forever and ever because of Jesus Christ. Because God sent Him to save us from the penalty of our sins. God also sent Jesus to free us from the power of sin, from the corruption that makes us fallen people who can't help but do selfish, proud, unrighteous things. That the addictions that we fall into and can't deliver ourselves, God can in the person of Jesus Christ. That there's a ministry here that meets in the evenings named Celebrate Recovery. And when these people who are struggling with addictions give their testimony, they say, good evening, my name is John. And I am a grateful believer in Jesus Christ who struggles with addictions. And then they give the testimony of how God intervened and delivered them when nothing else could. 
There's a ministry here in Denton called Freedom House. And it has that name because God brings freedom and a liberation and emancipation to those who have put themselves in bondage to a variety of addictions and sins. And the things that we find ourselves doing over and over again that hurt ourselves and our families and our loved ones, we just can't seem to help ourselves. But God can. And He sent Jesus to free us, not merely from the penalty of sin, but the power of sin, that when we identify ourselves with Him and we die with Him in the likeness of His death and we rise with Him to walk in newness of life. That we now have the Holy Spirit placed within us who makes us more and more like Christ and bears within us the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And He makes us more and more like Christ so that we're able to love God with more of a heart, mind, soul, and strength and love our neighbors more like ourselves and love our brothers and sisters in Christ more like Christ loved us. And He frees us from this life of always doing the wrong thing and making the bad choice. So Jesus frees us from the power of sin. And one day, Jesus will free us from the very presence of sin. That there is coming a time when Jesus will return and he will separate his sheep from the goats so that he might bring us to live with God in glorified bodies on a new earth. And then there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, because all of those former things will pass away for those that are in Christ Jesus. And we won't struggle with pride anymore, but we will naturally want to put others' needs beyond ourselves. And we won't struggle with lust anymore, but we'll be pure and freed from that thing that has distracted us from better things. And we won't be worldly, and we won't be carnal, and we won't be ambitious, and we won't be greedy, and we won't be hateful and hurtful and vengeous. And can you imagine a world where everybody is perfectly loving and where everybody is perfectly lovely and Satan can no longer tempt us and our flesh no longer misleads us, and we live in the presence of Him who is true and good and beautiful and love itself forever and ever and ever. And that's what Jesus came to offer us. Jesus came to free us, sinners like us, ungrateful people like us, from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, one day from the very presence of sin, and consider how this saving of our sins is going to take place. First of all, the second person of the Godhead, the second person of the Trinity, took on human flesh so that he could be human and be worthy of being our representative and our substitute. Jesus was willing, the Son was willing to leave the Father's side to come and not just dwell among human beings, but to become a human being. C.S. Lewis says, if you want to get a sense of what this is, don't imagine becoming a dolphin or an eagle, but a slug or a roach. And what it is to descend, and of course that's not even the beginning of the descent that Jesus did on our behalf. That He took on human flesh so that He could identify Himself with us. Secondly, Jesus had to live the perfect life as our representative so that he could meet all of the righteous requirements of God's law and that all of his righteousness could be reckoned to our account. That he would live a life characterized by perfect love for God and others. He never did anything that was displeasing to God. He never did anything that was willful and selfish. He never did anything that was proud and hurtful. 
that this is the one person who lived the perfect life that God intended all of us to live and enjoy. And he did it on our behalf so that all of the merits of that could be reckoned to our account. Thirdly, he had to suffer and die as our substitute. The, the best man that ever lived died the worst death that man has ever construed for us. That that beautiful babe was born to die. That that perfect child grew up so that he could one day hang on a cross for us. That the only way for us to be reconciled to God was for God's righteous requirements and wrath to be satisfied. And we could never do that. So Jesus did it for us because his love was so great. But it took God becoming a man, that man living a perfect life, and then him dying a substitutionary death so that all the wrongs that we did could be forgiven. That's what was necessary for us to be saved. He had to rise from the dead. He then is going to return victorious after reigning at God's right hand. This is how we are saved from our sins. Now, fourthly, consider who it is that is our Savior. Who was saved? Sinners. What were we saved from? The penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. How were we saved? through the incarnation, the perfect life, the substitutionary death, and the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And who is our Savior? It's this little boy that was born in a, in, in a manger in Bethlehem. Because only Jesus was humble enough to leave God's side and the celebration of the angels and not considering equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, he humbled himself and took the form of a human being, even a bondservant, even someone willing to go to death on a cross for us. Only the Son was humble enough. Only the Son was holy enough because only Jesus could live that perfect life that God required that we could never live. He's the only person that's ever lived that never did anything wrong, that always did everything right from a perfectly pure heart and motive. Only Jesus was humble enough and holy enough and only Jesus was loving enough to be willing to leave the presence of God and to leave the fellowship of the Holy Spirit and to come down and dwell among us. Um, our great heroes and heroines are those who place themselves in hard circumstances out of love. So Mother Teresa, who was willing to leave this private school where she was a geography teacher and to go and to live in the slums of Calcutta to be able to reach out to the poorest of the poor, and her love was so great that it compelled her to go be among those that she wanted to save. Or there's a gentleman named Father Damien that was a Roman Catholic missionary to Hawaii. And in Hawaii, there was a particular peninsula where they placed all of those afflicted with Hansen's disease, with leprosy. And as he would hear about this colony, his heart went out there and he sought and received permission from the church to go and to live among them. And as he ministered as the one healthy person in this leper's colony, one day, some hot water spilled from a pot and it fell on his foot and he didn't feel any pain and he realized he'd contracted the disease. And he became a leper for the sake of serving the lepers. Of Elizabeth Elliot, who after her husband was killed, moved in with her child into the village of the tribe that had murdered her husband so that they could receive the gospel and be saved. And all of these acts of sacrificial I will go live among, I will go even unto, I'll sacrifice this for their sake. All of that pales in comparison 
with Jesus whose love was so great that he came and voluntarily lived among us knowing that we would reject him, knowing that we would mock him, knowing that we would abuse him, knowing that we would crucify him. And he came anyway because his love was that great. That only Jesus was powerful enough to defeat Satan and to bind the strong man so that his house could be plundered, so that we could be rescued. Only Jesus was able to conquer death so that as it says in the Gospel of John, even those who die one day will live. And that one day all who are in Christ will rise and live with him forever and ever. Only Jesus was humble enough and holy enough and loving enough and righteous enough and good enough and powerful enough. And that's the one whose birth that we celebrate this season. He's the most glorious, wondrous, magnificent, loving, miraculous person who's ever lived. And that's what we celebrate this Christmas season. Matthew goes on to tell us that all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. God had anticipated this for centuries in the Old Testament scriptures. Prophecy after prophecy, adding layer after layer and detail after detail of what this child would be. And all of it was fulfilled. Here he quotes the prophet Isaiah in chapter 7, verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now in the context of Isaiah 7, there was a king of Judah named Azariah, and he was Isaiah rather, and he was being threatened and wondering whether the kingdom would survive. God said that there will be a young maiden, and before she gives birth to a child you will be delivered. And this was just a foreshadowing of the time when there would be a literal young maiden and virgin who would miraculously conceive. And in the context of Isaiah 7, Emmanuel means God with us in the sense that God is for us. That God did not abandon Judah even though Judah had abandoned God. And that God was still with his people even when his people had rejected God. So God... Emmanuel with us in the context of Isaiah was God for us, God on our behalf, God on our side. But we know with the coming of Jesus, it's even more than that. It is literally God with us. It is literally the word become flesh and then dwelt among us. It is literally what we sing veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, veil the incarnate deity, pleased as men with man, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel that we really did live in the presence of God. And this is one of the major themes running through scriptures, that God who exists eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, enjoying this loving fellowship, in the overflow of their love, made this universe so they could make men and women in their image so that we could enter into loving fellowship with the triune God. And Adam and Eve in Eden enjoyed the presence of God. But then when they sinned, they were evicted from Eden, but God pursued them. And we see God appearing at various times and places away to remind his people that they hadn't been abandoned, that they hadn't been completely forsaken. And then God dwelled among them in the tabernacle. And then God dwelled among them in the temple. And now God is dwelling among us in the person of Jesus Christ 
so that the Holy Spirit could come and dwell in each one of us individually, so that He could dwell in us as the church corporately, so that one day we could be in the very presence of God on the new earth and be with God who is love, intimately, perfectly, eternally, without an eruption forever and ever. God wants us to enjoy His presence, and He dwelt among us in the person of Jesus Christ. And God dwelt with us. God who is holy found a way to dwell with us who were unholy. God who is perfect found a way to dwell with us who are imperfect. God who is perfect love found a way to dwell with us who were unloving and to make us loving so that we can enjoy fellowship with Him. And God dwelt with us as one of us. And again, the miracle of the incarnation that this young babe that grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man while being fully human was also fully divine because otherwise his death would not be effective for the whole world, effective for all those who place themselves in him. And so he is Emmanuel, God with us. And then the text concludes, and Joseph awake from his sleep, awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And he took Mary as his wife, but he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. At the beginning of the text, Jesus. In the middle of the text, Jesus. At the end of the text, Jesus. Because the meaning of the season and the reason we celebrate Christmas is because Jesus Christ, Yahweh saves, the one who came to dwell among us as God in the flesh to deliver us from the penalty and the power and the presence of sin. So this coming year, we're going to be celebrating many births. Uh, some of y'all are expecting in your family and you're eagerly anticipating the date when you meet this new gift that God is giving you and forming right now in the mother's womb. And we're going to celebrate many birthdays. We're going to send out many greetings. We're going to buy several gifts. We're going to sing many songs. But none of them come close to what this birth is. The utterly unique, the one and only birth of the Son of God and the person of Jesus Christ taking on human nature that is our salvation, is the only hope of deliverance that we have. So even for the rest of this next Christmas week, as we go out and see nativity scenes, as we sing songs of a silent night and holy night and about births in a manger, let's remember the significance of the one that was born, of not just a sweet young babe, of not just a moving tale of a young couple, but of the appearance in human history of God who delivers us from our sins. And let's celebrate it, let's sing it, let's share it, because this is all of our hopes. This is all of our expectation to be delivered from our sin and our suffering someday. And if there's anyone here that has not yet embraced Jesus Christ as your Savior, the birth of Christ can be the season of your rebirth that all it takes to become one of God's people that he saves through Jesus Christ is for you to confess that you are a sinner, that you're imperfect, to say, God, I've not obeyed you perfectly, and I'm sorry about that. But I confess that Jesus Christ, your son, is my savior if I receive him, that he lived the perfect life that I could never live, that he died the death that I deserved, and would he now save me? And in that moment, God will fully forgive you. 
It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what sins you've committed. It doesn't matter how far you've run from God. All of those sins, though as scarlet, will be made as white as snow, and you will become a new creation in Christ. You will have a true, fresh start. God will place His Holy Spirit within you. You will become a child of God, a son or daughter of the great emperor of the universe. And one day, Jesus Christ will come back for you. If you've not done that, would you do that even this Christmas season? So now let's close in prayer and then we will close in song as we celebrate the joy that has come to the world with the coming of Jesus Christ. Father God, again, we thank you for this text. We thank you for loving us so much that you sent your son to come and to dwell among us as Emmanuel, as God with us. Because only as Emmanuel could he be Jesus. Yahweh saves. Lord, thank you for saving us from our sins. Thank you for making that offer open to all. For those of us who have received it, would we appreciate it afresh? Would we adore our Savior anew? And for those who haven't, would you open the eyes of their hearts to receive it as your gift to them this Christmas season? And we'll ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.